Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton. And I'm Ada Yee. Today, our guest is Peter Jonas, professor of neuroscience and physiology at the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria. In this episode, we will talk about his research on GABAergic interneurons linking molecular properties of neuronal subtypes to their greater circuit functions, and the challenges of building an institute from scratch. All this and more coming up. We're here with Dr. Peter Jonas, professor and founding member of the Neuroscience Research Cluster at the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jonas. Thank you for hosting me. So we usually like to start by talking a little bit about your background. So can you tell us about where you grew up and maybe uh, what made you decide to pursue a career in science? I grew up in Germany in a small city near Frankfurt, actually. And I studied medicine originally in Gießen, which is uh, also in Germany. And I was very interested in medicine, mainly because I wanted to learn more about how the human body works. But I soon realized that the uh, medical education was not sufficiently precise for me. So I wanted uh, always to know why. So whenever I learned something in medicine, I wanted to know precisely why. And this really came to a point where where I said uh, that medicine and where I thought that medicine would be interesting, but would not be my final destination. And I decided uh, to pursue my interest into the why more deeply and, and to go into science. Particularly, I was interested in neurology and neurobiology. And this is where I finally ended up. Did you know you were going to try physiology at that time? So I was interested in different areas. And during my career, what actually happened is that I moved up step by step. So I started in, in very biophysical aspects, like ion channel function. And then I moved up towards, as you have seen from my CV, I moved up towards synaptic transmission, synaptic plasticity, and also microcircuit uh, function. And uh, I hope the trend will continue like this. Understanding microcircuit function is obviously one of the big challenges of neuroscience these days. How did you get started? So you were in medical school. Did you join a lab? Yeah. So I joined the lab of Werner Vogel, a very small lab. He was uh, an, an interesting person working in the field of biophysics coming from biology background originally. And I was very lucky joining him because he, in the end, was very supportive and gave me all freedom I needed for pursuing my own ideas. So I'm running a lab where I, where I sometimes tell people exactly what to do, but probably that's not the optimal way of, of, of running it. Sometimes it's really necessary to do so. But in, in my case, I, I was very glad in that supportive environment. He always supported my ideas, but at the same time, he also let me pursue my ideas, which was a great environment. More specifically, as a postdoc in Werner Vogel's lab, you developed a technique in which you could acutely demyelinate natively myelinated nerve fibers, allowing you for the first time to get patch clamp recordings from myelinated axons. How were scientists studying myelinated axons before you developed this technique? And what were you able to learn about these fibers through these experiments? So these were very exciting times because before I started these experiments, people had done lots of measurements on macroscopic currents in myelinated fibers. There were small, sophisticated perspex chambers in which these fibers were mounted. 
and then they were covered by silicon grease um, uh, seals. And this was uh, a very nice way of, of recording macroscopic uh, currents, uh, which were huge in these myelinated nerve fibers. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very nice system and stable system. And just to clarify the audience, by macroscopic, you mean many, many ion channels all activated at once. Yeah, exactly. So the density, for example, of voltage-gated sodium channels uh, in such a node of Ranvier, the excitable part of the exon is called, uh, is enormous with uh, more than 1,000 ion channels per square micrometer uh, surface area of the membrane. So now... Obviously, we knew a lot about macroscopic behavior, but we did not know anything about single-channel currents in in that preparation. And this was an interesting point and and interesting questions, because at at that time, the first sodium channels and potassium channels were identified by molecular cloning. And uh, also, there were studies that uh, recombinantly expressed these uh, recombinant channels and studied their properties. And it was very exciting for me because I wanted to compare the native channels with the recombinant channels and try to match, match their properties. So we learned a lot about microscopic behaviors at the time because we were, for the first time, in a position to record single channels in the exonal membrane and also, for example, we learned a lot about potassium channels and their, their subtypes. But at the same time, we also discovered that the repertoire of, of channels that was present in the axon was not as simple as previously thought. So we rediscovered somehow what already had been predicted based on the macroscopic measurements. But at the same time, we also found new channels. And it's quite interesting Because if you look back, uh, one of the channels that was completely uh, unpredicted at the time was the leakage channel that generates the resting conductance uh, of these axons. So people had always talked about leakage conductance, and we we found a a flickering background uh, potassium channel at the time and characterized it very carefully. Uh, And then later on, by cloning, we learned that this was uh, probably one of the first descriptions of the two-pore domain uh, of family of potassium channels. So it's, it was, was very exciting because we also discovered new channels at the yeah. time. Can yeah. you describe in more detail what is a leaky channel I mean, and how that contributes to neural system function? So axons have two states of activity. One is the resting state, uh, where the membrane is sitting at the so-called resting potential, and the other one is the activated state, which corresponds to the action potential uh, of, of, the, of the axon. So now one of the questions is, we know a lot now about obviously how the action potential is generated, going back to the early work of Hodgkin and Huxley, for example. So we know about sodium channels and delayed rectifier potassium channels. But the key question is also for the resting state, what generates uh, the uh, resting potential and what generates and contributes to the resting conductance? And it's quite interesting that the channel that is responsible or one of the main channels that is responsible for generating the resting potential is a channel that is not highly voltage dependent, unlike many other channels, but rather is more or less open all the time in the resting membrane state and near the resting membrane potential. So when you look at this channel in single channel recordings, it's basically open all the time. But why, why would you just have this open channel all the time? Why do you think that such a thing would exist? 
Yeah, it's very important in molecular terms to define the active state of the membrane, but also to define clearly the resting state of the, of the membrane. And I think it's a good idea uh, that evolution has uh, designed a channel uh, that is more or less foolproof and active all the time to ensure that resting uh, configuration in a, in a very safe manner. All right. So following those kind of experiments, which I think really revealed some kind of interaction between uh, molecular data and physiological data and really the, the value of like very precise uh, subcellular measurements, um, you went on to go work with uh, Bert Sackman, who's a Nobel laureate, um, at the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg. And as I understand, that was a real incubator at the time for a lot of technological development. And there you were working on, as you said, you were going up the ladder a little bit. So you started working on mechanisms of synaptic transmission rather than just uh, kind of potentials and the intrinsic properties of cells at the Mossy Fiber to CA3 synapse in the hippocampus. Specifically, you were trying to mimic synaptic transmission by um, rapidly applying glutamate, which is an tra- excitatory transmitter, to isolated patches. So first, can maybe uh, you just briefly describe for our audience what this Mossy Fiber to CA3 synapse is? So the hippocampus, as uh, you will know, is one of the key regions uh, in the brain that is important for learning and memory. So we know this uh, from very old uh, scientific uh, literature and and old observations in patients. And the very famous patient is H.M., uh, Henry Molaison, who uh, received surgery of the hippocampus. So his hippocampus was taken out and he developed uh, an amnesia syndrome Uh, which shows very clearly uh, that uh, the uh, structure we are talking about is is very interesting for learning and memory, obviously. So if you look at the anatomical connections within the hippocampus, this is also very interesting uh, because there are three major cell types, glutamatergic principal neurons, which are connected to each other to form the so-called trisynaptic circuitry of the hippocampus. So the input station is the granule cell layer. The granule cells are the relevant uh, principal cells. And they connect to the CA3 pyramidal neurons. And these CA3 pyramidal neurons, in turn, connect to the C1 pyramidal neurons, which are the output neurons of the trisynaptic circuitry. So one of the ideas is that the information flow in the hippocampus is uh, characterized in a temporal sequence that first reaches the granule cells, then the C3 pyramidal neurons, and then the C1 pyramidal neurons. And obviously, a lot of computations are taking place in in the circuit. We don't know exactly what the nature of these computations is, uh, and maybe there's a change in the coding properties of the neurons uh, also. But nevertheless, uh, this trisynaptic structure of the circuit shows you very clearly Uh, that uh, one of these synapses uh, between the granule cells and the C3 pyramidal cells uh, is a very important third of that uh, trisynaptic pathway. So clearly, if you have one third of the synapses uh, being mossy fiber synapses, very roughly speaking, it's a very interesting structure to look at and and to characterize. And and you've continued to use the hippocampus as a model, mostly for its functional relevance or also because of this organization? Both arguments are valid arguments and are reasons for guiding us into the hippocampus. As you have seen from my CV, I have sometimes stepped out of the hippocampus as well, but there must be a really good reason for me to to do this. When uh, when I am by default uh, analyzing in, the, in my default mode of scientific research, I'm uh, analyzing circuit function. Uh, I always first look 
in the hippocampus. And so anyway, back when you were in uh, Bert Sackman's lab, so what did you find with these uh, glutamates puffing onto these isolated patches? So we wanted to compare synaptic currents on one hand and these currents activated by short pulses of glutamate. And before we started, there was actually uh, no system that allowed us uh, to apply uh, glutamate very rapidly uh, at the time scale of sub-millisecond uh, uh, timing or, or microseconds uh, even. So what we wanted to uh, know and uh, wanted to address is uh, we wanted to ask what is the duration of the glutamate pulse at a synapse? Is it a very short pulse, uh, maybe a millisecond or less, um, the microsecond range, or is it a longer pulse? And this is uh, a very relevant question because the response kinetics will be very different depending on the timing of, of the glutamate uh, pulse. So just to clarify something, so you said you're going to compare synaptic transmission with these puffs, which I guess are more controlled situation, because what would happen if you just measured regular synaptic transmission? Your readout would not give you all this information? That's exactly the point. When you measure a synaptic count and see a time course, you don't really know what the limiting factors are, what the limiting rates, for example, in the system are. If you look, see a time constant, say, of 5 milliseconds as a decay time constant of a synaptic current, you don't know whether it's the kinetics of the receptors that is limiting that time course or whether it's the duration of the glutamate pulse. You can only find this out by uh, applying glutamate in defined uh, constellations and under defined conditions and uh, perform experiments where you systematically vary the duration of the glutamate pulse. So if you make the glutamate pulse infinitely short, you will get the so-called deactivation time constant of the receptors and, and measure that time constant in this very defined uh, situation. If you, by contrast, make the pulse infinitely long, you will measure the desensitization time constant of, of the receptors. And the, clearly the synaptic scenario must be somehow in between but it's an interesting question to find out uh, how, how short the glutamate pulse actually is. And this comparison of the native synaptic currents on one hand and the uh, mimicked uh, currents in this artificial synapse system, as we have called it, allows you to do exactly this and to make exactly this comparison. And were you able to resolve what the limiting factor was in the end? So the conclusion, which was not trivial at the time, today it's probably trivial because many of these data have been uh, generated by us and, and by other groups, and now this all entered the textbooks. Uh, but uh, the conclusion was that the glutamate pulse was brief and that the rapid signaling of uh, the synapse and the rapid kinetics of the synaptic currents is more likely to be uh, generated by a short glutamate pulse than a long glutamate pulse. Okay, so if it's mostly controlled by the short pulse, so for the for the desensitization of these receptors, does that ever come into play endogenously, or is this just something that happens? That's an interesting question, which was also one of the outcomes of our study. Long pulses of glutamate, like 100 milliseconds, uh, probably never occur at a real synapse. But what can happen at a real synapse is repetitive activity, so that series of short uh, pulses of glutamate uh, follow each other at a short uh, time interval when the synapse is activated repetitively. And we have also tried exactly to mimic this uh, situation 
by not only applying a single short pulse of glutamate, but also a series of uh, glutamate pulses. And we found that, interestingly, the amplitude of the second response was reduced in comparison to the amplitude of the first response. So that shows you that even if you have a very short pulse of glutamate, and even if this desensitization time constant is not really relevant for shaping the synaptic current, it can be very relevant for shaping a second postsynaptic response, as may occur at a real synapse under repetitive activity conditions. And so would this contribute to synaptic depression? So actually, the answer is probably yes at some synapses. So there are very nice experiments by other groups, uh, also, uh, for example, uh, including uh, the calyx of health and, and auditory synapses, uh, where there is indeed evidence that uh, this might occur. And the reason uh, why at this synapse, for example, this may occur is twofold. On the one hand, we have very rapid desensitization kinetics of the receptors at these synapses. And on the other hand, it's probably the complexity and the large size of the synapse that uh, leads to this uh, configuration where desensitization can, can play a role. So probably, at, at least at some synapses, the answer is yes. Well, you are in the Sackman lab. Uh, you focus primarily on excitatory synapses. But since establishing your own group at the University of Freiburg in 1995, your lab has been interested in the synaptic properties of both excitatory pyramidal cells and inhibitory interneurons, particularly how these two cell types interact and influence each other. So in 1997, your lab found that the synapses on inhibitory neurons are organized in such a way as to maximally detect synchronous excitatory input. Can you describe more specifically what you found at a molecular level? So again, these were exciting times uh, because uh, when I left the Sackmann lab, uh, Bert Sackmann talked to me and uh, wanted to know, Jonas, what are you going to do next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, are, what are the challenges? Yeah. And I said, yeah, Bert, I will work on GABAergic uh, neurons and GABAergic interneurons. They're they very interesting. They have interesting properties. They have a fast spiking action potential phenotype, for example. And they also, we started to work on this neuron paper at the time, uh, which you referred to and alluded to. Uh, they have also fast excitatory synaptic currents. And that's very different from what you find in many pyramidal cells. So I would like to find out the underlying mechanisms and, and like to find out what's going on. And Bert's reaction was interesting because he said, Oh, why don't you work on a real neuron, like a layer 5, for example, neocortical uh, pyramidal neuron? Uh -huh. And I said, I thought you were going to do this, so maybe I should focus on, on, on something else anyhow. But independent, independently, I, I thought I uh, tackled an, in, an interesting question and an interesting cell type. And I, I think in retrospect, it's, it's quite interesting how... These GABAergic neurons, uh, which at the time when we started in 1995 were really exotic cell types, developed into yeah, something like a model also for many cellular functions. I have recently written uh, a review on the fast spiking GABAergic cells, which maybe you, you have read, and it's quite interesting. Um, I thought this would be a kind of uh, circumscribed uh, load of work adding to the additional work I have currently in the lab and in the institute. But it turned out I had to read 1,300 papers 
Oh my to gosh. Get, wow. get updated on fast spiking puff albumin expressing Italian. It just wow. seems like in the last 10 years or so, it's just really exploded the amount of literature on inner neurons. It's like in vogue a little bit. Um, you know, maybe you started pretty early when it was such an exotic cell, but now, and, and do you think there's something that has triggered all of this interest, you know, maybe besides your work also, but are there, you know, developments that maybe have made people interested in this now? So again, the answer is twofold. There are two components in the answer. One uh, component is clearly uh, that these fast spiking cells are interesting. They have interesting properties and you would like to nail it down at, at the molecular level, what the molecular reasons for this is are and the second point of course is again somewhat technical in nature because uh, clearly the selectivity of expression of certain proteins in these cells most importantly the calcium binding protein puff albumin has allowed researchers uh, very selectively targeting these neurons identifying these neurons unequivocally and targeting uh, these neurons uh, genetically, uh, for example. And um, now we are in the days of optogenetics, obviously, is, is a very popular technique. And it turns out that it is very easy to do optogenetics with these fast spiking powerful albumin expressing cells. So we can now manipulate them uh, in the circuit, in the intact circuit. We can activate them and also inhibit them. And uh, that's, of course, allowing us to perform dream experiments which is trying to relate the function of a given cell type with circuit behavior and, and high, higher brain functions in, in the end. Going back to this 1997 paper, just in more detail, can you describe what you found about how excitatory to inhibitory synapses are organized and how that contributes to neural circuit function? So we found that many properties of these fast-spiking GABAergic cells converge on speed. So we found, for example, that the excitatory synaptic currents, as we characterize them, under adequate voltage clamp conditions. Obviously, voltage clamp is a very important technique, and voltage clamp conditions are very important for these precise measurements. We found that they were super fast. They had super fast kinetics with time constants of less than a millisecond under under physiological conditions. Wow. Actually, when I, yeah, sorry, um, sometimes I've recorded these neurons and the way my mentor describes it is when I patch a pyramidal cell, often you see like spontaneous activity. When you patch these inhibitory neurons, you see little needles because the, the events are going so fast. Actually, that's a very good criterion for seeing, even without recording any action potential phenotype of these cells, whether you record from a fast spiking cells, from a fast spiking cell, because you have this train of, of very short uh, synaptic events. So we wanted to, to learn more about the underlying mechanisms again. And in collaboration with Hannah Monnier at the time, uh, we performed single-cell RT-PCR experiments uh, on these neurons. So we uh, sucked and harvested the cellular content um, of the neuron uh, during recording into uh, the patch pipette and then expelled the harvested material into a reaction tube and performed reverse transcription followed by polymerase chain reaction. And what we found was that the AMPA receptors, which were expressed, the major types of glutamate receptors that were carrying these currents uh, that were expressed in these cells, were distinct from those expressed in pyramidal neurons. So in pyramidal neurons, you mainly have uh, the so-called GLUR-A or GLUR-1 and uh, GLUR-B subunits, GLUR-2 subunits, 
But in these cells, there was a, a very striking lack of these QRB uh, subunits, and uh, that was responsible for uh, generating rapid kinetics, but on the other hand also was responsible for generating a second unexpected property of these receptors, which was the high calcium permeability of the, of the receptors. So if you look into old textbooks, you will find that AMPA receptors, and this is still true for pyramidal cells, are almost impermeable to calcium. But as it turns out, this is not correct for the uh, receptor subtype that is expressed in these uh, GABAergic uh, neurons. And somehow that makes me think, so if the calcium permeability is higher at these synapses onto interneurons, does that have any consequences for plasticity or convergence of information onto those interneurons as opposed to onto pyramidal neurons? Yeah, so some evidence for this uh, is indeed in the literature. Initially, we thought that synaptic plasticity, if present at all, would be very rudimentary at these excitatory input synapses and, and only very small in amplitude. But there has been accumulating evidence also from, from my group, but also from, from many other uh, groups, uh, that there can be also synaptic plasticity at these glutamatergic synapses on the garbage cells, and that the induction rules of synaptic plasticity are conspicuously different from those at a standard glutamatergic synapse on a pyramidal neuron. So we don't know precisely what uh, the role of the calcium inflow through the AMPA receptors is, but in some studies there's um, very convincing evidence for so-called anti-Hebbian synaptic plasticity induction rules, and that could very well be uh, generated by calcium inflow uh, through AMPA receptors. And in the paper you mentioned that the short timescale of these responses is conducive to detecting synchronous excitatory input. Are there excitatory cells as well that would want to detect synchronous input, and would they have similar uh, shorter kinetics? So one very nice example of a principal neuron, it's not the standard um, pyramid neuron in the hippocampus and not the standard pyramid neuron in the neocortex, but nevertheless uh, it's an important cell type, is the auditory pathway. So in the auditory pathway, like, for example, in the nucleus of the medial nucleus of the trapezoid body, uh, you have also very fast excitatory synaptic events. And here we have the masterpiece of coincidence detection, because as you will realize, binaural pathway detection of uh, auditory cues in space requires a very precise comparison of inputs coming from the two ears. That is a prototypical coincidence detection mechanism that has a very clear and very intuitively accessible circuit and, and, and function. Uh, in the GABAergic neurons, of course, the network function is a bit less clearly defined, but uh, clearly having a coincidence detection mechanism may be a useful mechanism for detecting seizure activity in the network under pathophysiological con conditions. And it also may be very useful if you think about the output function of these fast-spiking GABAergic cells, because we now have a huge body of evidence suggesting that they are important for the generation of high-frequency network oscillations like gamma frequency oscillations, as you have read. And clearly, having a detection mechanism for synchronized activity will help uh, to generate this clock function, if you want, uh, of these GABAergic cells. So I think this is one of the ma major challenges of uh, current neuroscience, 
to understand the links between molecules and synaptic properties on one hand and circuit function on, on the other hand. And we know a lot about cells and molecules and, and synapses, and we also know a lot, um, very admittedly, about uh, behavior of uh, animals and also uh, circuit activity um, uh, during uh, certain behavioral states, like an awake animal. But we know very little about, about the links. And from my perspective, from my subjective view, one of the main challenges to find out more about the, the links. So moving on from there, we're going to take a slight detour. So in 2011, you moved from University of Freiburg to uh, IST. And just briefly wanted to ask, what drew you to this new institute? You were a founding member of the, of the group there. So the answer is always the same, challenges. I was head of department uh, running an institute of physiology in Freiburg for 15 years. But uh, going to IST and um, thereby acting as a founding member of a, of a neurocluster at this institute, now uh, brought me into a position where I had to establish a neuroscience institute from scratch. And that's very challenging. And uh, also, I mean, it obviously has many disadvantages because if you want to start something from scratch, and uh, obviously you know this as, as a student starting an experiment from scratch or something completely new, if your supervisor tells you, uh, please do this, uh, sometimes can be, again, very challenging and, and um, it can take a long time. So it has some disadvantages, but it also has many advantages. And one of the advantages is that uh, we can establish an interdisciplinary research program here at, at IST, exactly implementing different levels of research like molecular, like cellular, like systems, neurobiology, and, and also other levels. And in the end, then hope that after 20 years, if you give us a bit of time, we understand much more about the links between the different levels and the mechanisms at the interfaces between these uh, different levels. One of my hopes is uh, that in the end, uh, after doing uh, 20 years of research here at IST, we come uh, to a point where we can exactly provide answers uh, to the questions of what are the links between molecules and behavior, what are the links between cellular function and, and behavior, and how can we connect uh, these uh, different, different levels. If you look back, the interactions, the interdisciplinary interactions between different levels have always helped us uh, in this um, regard a little bit. But also modeling has helped us a lot. So we have always seen modeling as a kind of interaction promoting factor that uh, allows us to make predictions and to test these predictions under experimental uh, conditions in, a, in a, a very straightforward way. And one of the key uh, hallmark properties of IST is that there's not only neuroscience here, but as you may have seen, there's also computer science, there's mathematics implemented here. So we have we have a lot of help regarding the modeling. We're going to ask you a, a question about uh, some of the work you did just after moving to IST that will actually um, uh, lead into a question about modeling. So to focus first on the uh, neurobiology, uh, strict neurobiology, um, <laughs> So shortly after you moved, a paper from your lab explored the role of the parvalbumin gene in controlling interneuron firing rates of these parvalbumin interneurons. So as a neuroscience grad student, I've long known that there are parvalbumin-expressing interneurons and non-expressing interneurons, but 
I personally didn't know what parvalbumin actually did. So can you uh, describe what role parvalbumin interneurons just have in the brain generally and, and then uh, their firing properties? Uh, and then talk about uh, what your lab found about what parvalbumin is actually doing in these neurons. So it's quite interesting that uh, parvalbumin expression and the very high level of selectivity of parvalbumin expression has been reported a long time ago. And indeed, it turns out that um, parvalbumin is a highly selective marker, not only by using immunocytochemistry. We are in a very fortunate situation that we have very selective and very good antibodies. As you know, many antibodies are not as good. But uh, parvalbumin is, is really a, a kind of fortunate case. Uh, it allows us to label these cells. But also genetically, for example, we have a very reliable parvalbumin Cray mouse line that allows us uh, to perform optogenetics uh, experiments on uh, parvalbumin cells. But the function of parvalbumin is still a bit unclear. Because if you look into the exact details of the binding, of the calcium binding properties of parvalbumin, it turns out that there is a binding of not only calcium, but also magnesium to the binding sites of the parvalbumin. And uh, the binding kinetics of magnesium is surprisingly slow. And this, according to the uh, classical literature, suggests that Parvalbumin acts as a slow buffer because magnesium has to come off from the binding sites first before calcium can bind uh, to these sites and can capture calcium uh, uh, during uh, naturally occurring uh, calcium inflow uh, scenarios. So this is interesting, and we wanted to go a little bit into this. Uh, and uh, uh, one very simple experiment we did was measuring the concentration of parvalbumin in different cell types. And we somehow interestingly and, and surprisingly found that the concentration of parvalbumin was not the same in different cell types, but varied over orders of magnitudes. So, for example, we found that in the cerebellum, in cerebellar interneurons, where parvalbumin is also expressed, the levels of expression were much higher than uh, in some hippocampal uh, parvalbumin expressing interneurons. So if you talk about parvalbumin expression and, and parv-positive cells, you also have to take into account the concentration of uh, the calcium-binding protein. And it turns out, and we had some evidence for this, that at very high concentrations of uh, parvalbumin and, and very high expression levels, as we found it in cerebellar uh, neurons, uh, parvalbumin can not only act as a slow buffer, but apparently also have rapid, uh, can have rapid buffering uh, effects because simply uh, not 100% of the parvalbumin is bound to magnesium, but only approximately 80 to 90% is bound to magnesium. And there's a free apoform, as it is called, of parvalbumin uh, that can bind uh, calcium di directly. And that is becoming a relevant fraction because if the parvalbumin concentration, the total concentration is as high as uh, one millimolar, as we found, that unbound fraction can come, in, come into play. And we think that what uh, that um, could do to synaptic transmission, for example, is uh, it potentially could act as an anti-facilitation factor by, by binding the calcium 
it potentially can um, prevent facilitation at uh, inhibitory synapses. If you if you look, if you apply trains of stimuli to synapses, very often you can see facilitation at output synapses of GABAergic cells. You often you often don't see this. You more often see more typically see depression, and we think that one of the reasons why that is, at least in cerebellum, is the anti-facilitation mechanism provided by the pavalbumin and made possible by this relatively high concentration. Is there, yeah. just out of curious, is there pavalbumin knockout or removal that, that has been able to demonstrate this is directly, directly that this is the case? So we have come to this conclusion by exactly comparing wild-type and pavalbumin knockout, knockout mice. So that was part of the evidence we had. That's really interesting because I think pravabumin for a lot of people is just a marker. and They don't think of it as having gradations or functional effects. So um, yeah. that's really cool. I mean, I, I would like to add that pravabumin presumably is also relevant in diseases. So there, there are many papers claiming that pravabumin concentration is reduced in schizophrenia, for example, and other psychiatric diseases. And I, I would like to see more hard data on this, obviously, but it's a, it's a very challenging and, and interesting problem. Huh, interesting. And why would you want parvalbumin only in these parvalbumin-expressing interneurons, which I know from being these rapid spiking, really shunting neurons that, that sort of control activity in a system often, why would you want you know, to buffer calcium in these cells and not other interneurons? So obviously, it's always challenging to try to answer teleological questions uh, because I think there are certain features of the brain where there is no clear function and no clear explanation which you can nail down. It's just expression of a protein that is there. But I think in the case of the path albumin expressing cells, uh, it's very nice because the different functions of these cells go in the, end, in the end, very well together and, and go hand in hand in a, in a, in a very uh, convincing way because uh, many factors converge on rapid signaling, as I, as I told you. So there's the rapid excitatory input, which is interesting. There is um, the fast spiking action potential phenotype, which is also one component in this machinery, if you want, uh, of, the, of the rapid signaling. And if you... Uh, Look about this, and if you think about this, it's uh, uh, making a lot of sense to continue that rapid signaling uh, mechanism repertoire to the output side and to implement a synaptic depression mechanism at the, at the output side. And by abolishing facilitation with a function of the path albumin that I explained a couple of minutes ago, that is exactly what is, what is happening. So you have fast signaling at the input, fast signaling at the mechanisms of excitability and the conversion of input into the action potential, and you also have fast signaling and depression mechanisms uh, at the output side. So potentially it fits together very well by generating a unified rapid signaling uh, property of these cells. You also found something about the distribution of voltage-gated sodium channels that might explain why these neurons fire in rapid succession. Can you describe that? So one part of the lab uh, is doing what we now call subcellular patch clamp recording. So we are not doing simple experiments anymore. As Tom Sutov phrased it very nicely, 
the time of simple experiments is over. <laughs> prob probably true in many respects, not in all respects, but in, but in many respects. So we are now targeting subcellular domains of, of, in this case, GABAergic cells like dendrites and axons. And um, we can, for, for the first time, look into the function of the axons of these cells in a, in a very precise way. And when we do this, we find many interesting aspects. And, and one interesting aspect you mentioned is that there is a high sodium channel density, again, helping these cells to conduct action potentials rapidly from the site of integration, the dendrites, to the output, the presynaptic terminal. So again, it goes uh, together with the idea that rapid signaling is very important for the function of these neurons. And finally, we did want to come back to the modeling. So in that paper, as with many, many of your papers, you combine your experimental data uh, with computational modeling. And so you talked a little bit about how as an institute, you guys really support that kind of way of interpreting things and framing your work. But for you personally, I was actually curious. So uh, do you do your own modeling? And, and for you personally, what does modeling give you? So for me, modeling is very important Because I have to admit that my intuition sometimes is good, but also has very, very clear limitations. So in emerging properties of complex systems like neural networks, I think you come to the end of intuition and, and the power of intuition uh, very soon. So you need something to help you to sharpen your intuition and uh, to make predictions. Uh, and for me, modeling is fulfilling exactly this role. So we have done modeling at many different levels. We have done modeling of synapses, for example, of um, coupling of um, calcium inflow with uh, transmission and, and transmitter release. We have done modeling also of glutamate diffusion, which you alluded to early in our discussion. And we have also done modeling of network activity, like, uh, for example, gamma oscillation activity in, in GABAergic networks. So in all cases, modeling always made nice predictions and enabled us to design experiments to test these predictions. And th th that's a very nice uh, combination. So ideally, the model makes predictions, you can test them in experiments, and then you end up with new experimental observations which you can use to revise and update your models. I like this idea because, in a way, science, the whole pursuit is to see if your intuitions may be wrong. And so we have been wrong so often. <laughs> yeah. uh, falsified by modeling, falsified uh, by experiments. But I think this is exactly what we have to do in science. We have to generate hypotheses and do, do everything we can to falsify these hypotheses. And so finally, we were wondering if you could give us a preview of your seminar. So I will talk about mossy fiber synaptic transmission and excitatory uh, synaptic uh, transmission, because with the subcellular patch clamp recording tools we have now, we can record from presynaptic terminals and also stimulate presynaptic terminals and simultaneously record from postsynaptic cells. And that's very useful, especially for Uh, recording mossy fiber synaptic events because we can uh, identify unitary synaptic connections and, and very systematically uh, characterize them. And I will talk about, uh, again, trying to make the links. I will talk about how we can uh, begin to understand the basic biophysical properties of this synapse, like the coupling between the calcium channels and the calcium sensors of exocytosis, and the 
facilitation properties of these synapses and their potential role uh, in the network. So now at this point in the interview, we go on to a series of rapid fire questions. All right. So the first one, if you could go back in time and speak to graduate student Peter Jonas, uh, I guess medical student, um, whichever, uh, what, what advice would you give yourself? If you have an idea, always try it out. The next question, what great Vienna scholar has done more to contribute to the understanding of the human brain? Sigmund Freud or Peter Jonas? I see. Well, Eric Kandel has also Vienna ah, roots. Uh, might be also in the game. So I, I really cannot decide between these three guys. So you are someone who has really been at the forefront of innovating and using new techniques to probe the brain. For example, simultaneous recording from 10 neurons at a time in the CA3. Um, so many, many of these uh, difficult recordings. So I'd like to know, what do you think has helped you be successful at this? And what do you think you would most like to see, uh, like to see happen in the future? So development of new techniques is always important and has been very important in um, developing these complicated and, and challenging experiments. So we have not been frightened by uh, the time that was necessary to develop these techniques. When we saw that something was not working and we thought it might work uh, with new and different techniques, we went ahead and made changes accordingly. And I think this was, was very useful. What other techniques I would like to see developed? Yeah, I mean, there, we, we are living in exciting times. There are lots of interesting developments. Subcellular patch clamp recording is one development. In vivo recording is another area where we are trying to get the foot into the door. This will be also very important to learn more about the activity of cells under in vivo conditions in a behaving animal, ideally. Uh, and ideally, in 20 years, we would like to make all these uh, fancy experiments we are doing now in slices. We would like to repeat them under in vivo conditions like paired recordings, for example, or presynaptic recordings. All right. So with that, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today, Professor Jonas. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. We we'll hope you'll join us next week when we talk to Dr. Takaki Komayama, a professor at the University of California, San Diego, in the Department of Neurosciences and Neurobiology. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, Yet Nguyen, and myself, Ada Yi. Thanks to Adam Huchel and Kyle Riley for composing and performing our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is NeuroTalk. I'm David Lipton.